You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Let me try a list of names on you. Mary Clayton, Mabel John, Oren Waters, Claudia Lanier, Lisa Fisher, Suze Green, Tata Vega, Judith Hill, Joe Lowry, Darlene Love. Know them? Okay, let me try another list. Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, Ray Charles, Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Wonder, Leonard Skinner, David Bowie, Paul Simon, Elton John, Tina Turner, Sting, Michael Jackson, Mick Jagger. Heard of those guys, haven't you? You know the difference between the first list and the second is? About 20 feet. 20 feet. That's the distance between a lead singer and a backup vocalist. New movie out uh, called 20 Feet from Stardom. Our family watched this week. Highly recommend that you watch this documentary. Got an Academy Award this March. And it's about backup singers. As it turns out, most of the pop rock and roll music from the 20th century uh, was carried by a very small number of backup musicians whose names are, for the most part, not recognized at all. And this, this movie is really about two paths that get very, very close, 20 feet apart. The distance between the center of the stage and in front of the drums or the bass player. Two paths, the path of the superstar and the path of the person whose name you never know. And yet, one music industry expert says, these people, most of them are women, most of them are African-American women, are some of the most talented people on the planet. In the movie, there's a scene where the producers have invited Mary Clayton uh, to go back into the studio where she recorded in 1969, she goes into this beautiful empty room, African-American woman. She tells a story of what happened that night. She'd been in bed, midnight, the phone rings. Her husband rolls over, grabs it. She's got curlers in her hair. She's pregnant. What's this? It's an agent. Whether well, a group of boys who are in town from London and the night has gotten late and they're looking for a female vocal. Would you be willing to come over? A number of people had said no. Her husband says, I think you should take it. Mary Clayton gets in the car and she shows up in this soundstage with silk pajamas. And this group of boys happens to be some obscure little group called the Rolling Stones. And Keith Richards had tried to sing this part and it just didn't sound right with a male vocalist. And so Mick Jagger sort of explains, it's a song, it's called Gimme Shelter. And there's a, a lyric that, and the words were troubling. She, Mary Clayton repelled a little bit. They reflected the violence of the late 60s in that era. And yet she said, okay, I'll do it. And I'm going to show these boys something they've never seen before. And they played the track and... She dug into it, and she absolutely roared. So much so that when you listen to that track alone, as you can hear in the movie, the whole studio just erupts with astonishment when she finishes. You listen to Gimme Shelter, and you hear that female vocal over the top. That's Mary Clayton. 
If you listen very closely, you'll hear Mick Jagger go, wow. Because he knows he's in the presence of genius. Similar paths. Same music. Same dedication. Same gift. Very, very different. One is a path of glory, and the other is a path of hardship. Darlene Love would have to buy a vacuum cleaner and clean houses. Claudia Lanier, to this day, teaches Spanish. And Mary Clayton, just after Gimme Shelter that night, she would have a horrible miscarriage and lose her child. Hardship. And as you watch this movie, the question that comes at least to my mind is, how can you get that close to someone who has so much going for them? Elvis Presley. And not be swallowed up by envy. How can you get that close to someone who has so much good? You look into their life, you see so much good that when you look into your own, you can hardly find any by comparison. That's the question of envy. That's what we're talking about this morning. And as we've been doing, we'll, we'll, we'll take a case study approach. We'll look at one of these stories. That some of them are very strange in the Old Testament. And we'll ask the questions. What is it? What is envy? And what does it do in our lives? And then what disrupts it? So if you brought one, would you open your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 13, verses 7 through 10. If you didn't bring one, no problem. We've got a black book in the rack in front of you there. Pull that out and open up to page 278. 1 Kings Chapter 13, verses 7 through 10. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Then the king said to the man of God, come home with me and dine, and I will give you a gift. The man of God said to the king, If you give me half your kingdom, I will not go in with you, nor will I eat food or drink water in this place. For thus I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat food or drink water or return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he had come to Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. You might want to leave the Bible open. I'm going to refer to it again. But let's begin with the question, what is envy? How should we define envy? Here's my definition. Envy is sorrow alongside another path. Envy is sorrow alongside another path. You take your eyes off your path for a second and you see that there's another path right next to you. You see what that person on that path has and you begin to feel sorry about yourself and what you have on your path, envy. This is a story about paths. The main characters in this story are a man of God, the word of God, and and a path. The verses that you just read contain the word path in Hebrew three times. It's translated way. Runs all the way through this story, the way. Don't leave the way. God has given me a way. I've got to stay on my way. And so the tension in the story, even from the moment that we read, 
is a question. It's, it's, it's a question, what will, what will it take to get this man of God or this prophet off of his path, off of his way? What will it take? It won't be royalty because the king essentially commands him to and he won't. It won't be greed. This is not a story about the longing for money because he, the prophet says, if you give me half your kingdom, I won't leave this path because God has commanded me to return by, by this particular way, not the way that I came. Sorrow alongside another path. I hope you hear three elements in there. There's the sorrow. That hasn't come into the story yet. There's the path, and we've seen that. And then there's the comparison. These three elements. Evagrius of Pontus in the fourth century was the first one who began to list what has become the seven deadly sins. And Evagrius uh, actually had eight of them, and he called them thoughts. But when it came to envy, he described that as sadness. Envy as sadness. This isn't really surprising to us because Socrates in the 4th century B.C. had described envy as mental pain. But it's not just sadness or mental pain that occurs in isolation. It occurs when we bump up against somebody else. Somebody is like us in large respect. A king is too dissimilar from a prophet. But if a prophet comes alongside another prophet, then there's an opportunity for mental pain that derives from comparison. Aristotle, also in the 4th century B.C., described envy as a disturbing pain excited by the prosperity of others. When I see the prosperity of others, something inside of me hurts. That's why Gore Vidal writes, the American novelist, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. That's honest, isn't it? Frederick Buechner, another novelist, says he defines envy as the consuming desire to have Everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. <laughs> Thomas DeLong is a uh, professor at Harvard Business School, and he writes about what he calls the comparison trap. And one of his students uh, 10 years ago graduated from Harvard Business School. She was an excellent student. It wasn't a surprise to him that she landed a job at a Fortune 500 company. But unfortunately, what happened was she received her alumni newsletter and you know what it's like when you read the alumni newsletter and there she saw a classmate of hers had just been elevated as a vice president at a Fortune 100 company. And from that moment on, DeLong said she would always talk to people about how horrible she felt about herself. It's the power of envy. And it's not just people who go to Harvard Business School that feel it. It's all of us. I was recently reading a New York Times article about a 33-year-old named Sarah Sarah is standing in line at the pharmacy, CVS, uh, and she's waiting there. She happens to pull out her phone and scroll through her Instagram feed. And Instagram is just a catalog of photographs. And she's got a friend who is in the uh, recording industry in Los Angeles and travels with her work all the time. And so unfortunately, there she is scrolling through the feed, and she sees uh, her friend in Cannes or in New Mexico or Abu Dhabi on a, a film shoot. She's going to Holland, and she's just come from Miami where she enjoyed a wedding on a yacht, and all these beautifully curated and Photoshopped photos are screaming at her. And she says, here I am waiting in line to pick up my Prozac and Klonopin. She says, I'm standing in my stained sweatpants. And I was thinking, I really need to up my game, you know? And that's what envy will do. The article says that with all of these images that are 
projected and broadcast at us. It feels like we're suffocating in all the fabulousness. The Martha Stewart table settings, the perfect kids with the, the glinting teeth, the uh, fantastic vacations in far-flung exotic places. That's why Slate magazine just last week published a story in which someone wrote, Instagram is exclusively image-driven and images will crack your mirror. It hurts. There's sorrow when we come alongside the path of somebody else who appears to be doing better. And so there's another prophet in the story, and here's where we're going to begin to, to discover the dynamic of envy and how it works and what it does in our lives. Let me pick up the story in verse 11 and continue reading. Now, there lived an old prophet in Bethel. One of the, Bethel's a scene where you just read took place. One of his sons came and told him all that the man of God, the young prophet, had done that day in Bethel. The words also that he had spoken to the king, they told to their father. And their father said to them, well, which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And then he said to his sons, saddle a donkey for me. So they saddled a donkey for him and he mounted it. He went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree and said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? He answered, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat some food. But the young prophet said, I cannot return with you or go in with you, nor will I eat food or drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat food or drink water there or return by the way that you came. Then the other one said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. Bring him back with you into your house so that he may eat food and drink water. But he was deceiving him. Then the man of God went back with him and ate food and drank water in this house. And the question that we ask, if you read the story, is why? Why would these two prophets do what they have just done? Why would the old prophet lie about a word that he did not receive in order to pull someone into his home? Why would the young prophet, who knew so clearly he was supposed to come home to Judah by a different way, why would he give up that commission, divert his plan, and go with this prophet? And the answer is, I don't know. Uh, we don't really know, and that's part of what's wonderful about these stories is they keep us puzzling and probing deeper. But if you engage a sanctified imagination you might conclude that it has something to do with envy. When we ask, why do you do this? I think we're on the right path because I think in some ways each of them has an opportunity to ask the question, why not me? Which is the question that envy provokes in our minds. This is the dynamics. Why not me? The dynamic of envy is that it pushes us off the path off of our path towards somebody else's when we see their prosperity. I'm not sure this is what happens here, but try this on for a moment. Let's start with the old prophet. The old prophet is a man who's sitting on the sidelines in life right now. He wasn't invited to be with the king that day that King Jeroboam tries to inaugurate a new altar, a golden calf there in Bethel. 
But that day, his sons, the prophet's sons, will come home to his house in Bethel. These are grown men, I believe, and when they come home, he has rarely seen them so enthusiastic as they are right now. They're starstruck. They're talking to him all about this young prophet. Dad, you should have been there. This young prophet, he walked right up, right in the middle of the ceremony, dedicating this new altar. He walked right up to the king himself, and he denounced the whole operation. And as he did that, the altar cracked in half. The king tried to arrest him, but then he couldn't withdraw his hand. And the prophet asked God to heal his hand, and it was healed. Oh, my gosh, you wouldn't believe what he said. You wouldn't believe what he did. And the old man sitting on the sideline says, I can't remember when I ever heard my sons talk with such respect and enthusiasm about me. And I remember myself what it was like to stand before a king and to say, thus saith the Lord. And I wonder what it would be like to get close to a real prophet. I mean, one that's got game still. I mean, one that's still in the race. I wonder, just to get close to him for a meal? Why is it him why wasn't I invited to Bethel? Why didn't the word of the Lord come to me? Why not me? And then envy's got him. And it gets dark from there. Let's think about the young prophet. What could be going on in his head? After all, he knows he's not supposed to turn to the right or the left. He's supposed to go home by a different way than the way that he came. Not take the major highway, pick his way through field and dale. But then he meets a man, an old man, a wise man, a prophet who lives in Bethel. And maybe he's saying to himself, would you look at that? Man, that's a prophet. That's what a prophet's supposed to look like. He's old. Look at the cracks in his face. You can see the wisdom. Look at those steely gray eyes. I mean, this is a real prophet. This guy lives in Bethel. It means house of God. This is where our patriarchs, the fathers, used to worship. This is where Jacob had his dream. What would it be like to be a prophet in Bethel? What would it be like to be a man who had succeeded as a prophet? I know for me, I've got a lot of twists and turns ahead, a lot of choices I have to make. I don't really know how to get there. Oh, to sit with a man who's made those choices and made them well. I wish I could sit with him. I wish I could be him. Why not me? And then boom, envy's got him. These two men now off of their own paths have been pushed by the sorrow we call envy. Two paths, 20 feet apart, and a dangerous question, why not me? Have you ever caught yourself asking that question? Have you ever hung up the phone after talking to your sister and because and, you know that she married this man who's stinking rich and you say, why not me? <laughs> You ever find yourself watering that little green strip between the road and the sidewalk that they call a lawn, and you see a huge SUV with a trailer and a boat move going by, and you say, why not me? Have you ever found yourself trying to start a business, and uh, you meet someone at a coffee shop whose business just went public, and you're not even sure you can pay the payroll? Why not me? Envy, if you're not careful, will push you off the path and it won't go well for you as it doesn't go well for these two men. By the end of the story, the young prophet will have been attacked by a lion. 
The old prophet will stand over his grave where he will bury the young prophet, grieving, grieving, because he knows now at the end of his life he's turned into a false prophet. And over that body, this is sort of bizarre but interesting, there will stand vigils. The donkey that carried the old man off his path and the lion that attacked the young man when he left his path will stand there as witnesses. Envy will push us off the path and it will do so in two ways. Disparagement or discouragement. Let me sketch this out for you. Disparagement or discouragement. Disparagement, I think, is the method of the old prophet. He feels the sorrow of envy and his strategy is to push somebody else off of their path. Why do we take secret pleasure at celebrity scandals? Why do we love to see the big man fall off his pedestal? Why do people who look stupid seem funny to us and delightful in a way? Why do we seek somehow subtly perhaps to to sabotage those people who are in places where we would like to be, whether it's a colleague or a manager or an owner? Envy. For somehow when I feel the, the sorrow and the pain, the mental pain of envy, I think I can relieve that by making somebody else feel weaker or appear weaker. In the New Yorker magazine, there's a picture of two dogs pulling up to the bar in suits, and one says to the other, it's not enough that we, must, must, that we might succeed. We also have to make sure the cats fail, right? <laughs> and I support that, by the way. Um, disparagement, just kidding. But you know what? Richard Smith, who has written a monograph on envy, published by Oxford Press, says this, envy is a force to be reckoned with. Malignant envy, he writes, is hostile in nature. The envying person feels anger or ill will toward the envied person. We tend to think of it as a victim, victimless crime, just to fold our arms and go, well, why not me? But no, Smith says, it will work its way out in hostility towards another person. Then the other uh, uh, approach to envy is discouragement. And I think this is the strategy of the young prophet, whether he realizes it or not. Discouragement is pushing yourself off the path, not pushing somebody else, but yourself off the path. Now let me ask you this. Why would somebody who loves to play the clarinet and played it for four years at Roosevelt High School get to college, audition for the orchestra, get into the orchestra, but three weeks later give up the clarinet altogether? Why would some really talented people have that power over her life? Or why would a lawyer who does very well in her career gets recognized by the partners and is sent off to Washington, D.C. to work with the main group of patent lawyers at that firm? No sooner does she arrive than she begins suddenly to start underperforming. Why? Envy. Because sometimes when we come alongside other people who are gifted and talented just like we are, we feel better. We reduce that grief by pulling back, by abandoning the league, by giving up the fight. And so we see envy is not only hostility to others, it's hostility to ourselves. Thomas DeLong, this Harvard Business School professor, he talks about what it was like to get hired by Harvard. 
And he said, I got all these cards and letters from friends and family. They said, man, that's like the brass ring of academia for a business guy. You know, well done. And he felt great. He said, until I took my books and my boxes and I started walking down the hallway to my office on that very first day. And I had to pass all the nameplates along the hall. The person who had the office next to me was an internationally known scholar, had published 12 books, owned a house on Cape Cod, and worst of all, was a really nice guy. <laughs> and so he asked, well, you wonder why I didn't come the other way to my office? And the answer is, it was worse on the other side. There was a young guy there, an MIT professor who had gotten a Nobel Prize at age 46. And he also was a very supportive colleague. And Thomas DeLong writes, much as I wanted to dislike these guys, I found myself disliking me because of what they had accomplished and what I had found myself disliking me. That's why Henry Fairley writes, the envious man does not love himself. He's not grateful for, happy in, what he or she is, or what he or she has. The sin is deadly, less because it destroys you, than because it will not let you live. It will not let you live as yourself, grateful for your qualities and talents such as they are, and making the best and most rewarding use of them. See, discouragement. Envy will push us off the path. That's the dynamic. Let's finally look at the disruption. What would, what would disrupt this dynamic? Well, of course, it's our Savior, Jesus Christ. And how? Jesus gives you a path. Jesus gives you a path. And Jesus walks the path with you. That's what I want you to remember today, that Jesus gives you a path and walks it with you. Jesus is the faithful word of God who calls, encourages, and empowers you. Do you know what? Throughout the intellectual history of human beings, we have always known that there were essentially two paths. There's the path of hardship that humans walk. And then there's the path of glory that divinity walks. And never the two shall meet until in the fullness of time, God himself, the Son of God, took on flesh to come and walk among us. To be God with us and God for us. A man acquainted with sorrows. That's our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, when the Dead Sea Scrolls went on tour a few years ago, I went. Maybe some of you saw. I think it came to Seattle. I went down to see it, San Diego to see it. I want to tell you the point at which I was overcome by grief, brought to tears. It wasn't the parchments and the scrolls, though they were fascinating. You know what it was? It was off to the side, a little plexiglass case that held a sandal. It was a leather sandal that had been preserved in a cave for 2,000 years. And it was very ordinary, and that's why I was so moved, because I said, this sandal might have been made by the same person who made the sandal for my Savior, Jesus Christ, walking the dusty roads of Judea, God with dirt on his feet. The hero of this story is the Word of God. That's, the word of God is the hero for the whole book of Kings, First and Second Kings, all the way through. That's why there's so many stories about prophets, thus saith the Lord. The proclamation that was made, the word of the Lord that came through the young prophet in verse 2, 
will be fulfilled 300 years later by Josiah, who will come to Bethel to the same altar to do just what the prophet said he would do. And that the word of God is the hero of this story is reflected by its final verse, the, the climax of it, when now repentant, the old prophet, bowed in grief, says, for the saying that the young man proclaimed by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places, the false temples, that are in the cities of Samaria, shall surely come to pass. That's his takeaway. After all of this, he says, the word of the Lord shall surely come to pass. God has spoken his word to you and to me in Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus who disrupts our envy. He gives you a path and he walks with you. Let's, let's look at both of those parts. First of all, that he gives you a path. God's word to us is personalized. Verse 21, here's when things, we discover what really goes wrong. In verse 21, at the end, the Lord speaks as these two men sit at a table eating a, a forbidden meal. Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and not kept the commandment that the Lord, God, your God, commanded you. The oracle says. That's the word to the young prophet. The problem for you is that you didn't obey the command that your God, the one who loves you, the one who made you, commanded you. He's got a path for you. And that's why Jesus walks around telling people to follow them, follow him. Because for each of his followers, he has a unique path. Each one of us is a unique, unrepeatable miracle. You can't live the life that God has for anybody else, and nobody else can live the life that you alone are called to live. That's good news. He's got a plan for you. He has a word for your life. The tragedy of this whole situation is that you've got two guys looking 20 feet apart from one another, and they're each saying, I want what he has on that path. And God's saying, I want you as you. Martin Buber, the Jewish theologian, quotes the Jewish tradition when he tells the story of a rabbi named Zusia. Rabbi Zusia says, in the coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? They will ask me, why were you not Zusia? You see, your call is to follow Jesus and so to discover who you really are and to live that life. God's word to us is personalized, but the other thing is Jesus walks our path with us. God's word to us is personal. And one of the great surprises of this passage is that in verse 20, as these two men sit down at the table and God speaks through a messenger, that God does not speak through the young prophet, that he chooses to seize the old prophet. This man who thought, I'll never speak for God again. I'm useless. I'm washed up. I'm on the sidelines. I'm retired. To him... The Lord says, I'm not done with you. In fact, I've been with you all along. The word of God has followed you through every bend and curve in your path. And I know you've got a lot of words for yourself, forgotten, spent, and useless. But here's my word for you, my beloved messenger. Your life is just beginning. Let's walk together. And you may sit here this morning and say, I wish my path ran through ease or recognition. And I wish my path didn't run through financial insecurity and Parkinson's disease. But I want you to hear the word of your Lord this morning who says to you, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. 
This is the Son of God who has left the path of glory to walk beside you. There's a moment in the voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis when Lucy, one of the four children, finds herself at a desk standing as I am and there's a book on the desk and it's a book of magic. And she reads on the page, quote, an infallible spell to make her who uttereth it beautiful beyond the lot of mortals. She's never seen herself as beauty, not least in comparison with her sister Susan. And so she's arrested by the possibilities of this spell. She stops and she looks at the page. And there are a series of pictures that then magically appear. One is a picture of her right now, dowdy and standing at a desk and reading a book. The next is a picture of her frightfully chanting a spell. And then the next is a picture of her gorgeous, radiating glory. So much so that she sees the kings of the earth fighting over her beauty. And then the last picture. The last picture is back in London. It's a picture of her sister, Susan, the beauty of the family. Susan looking now delightfully plain. She prepares to say that spell when all of a sudden on the page, a painting emerges in gold paint. It's the figure of a lion with teeth. And she stops. She's startled by it because she could almost think that the image is moving. In a moment, Aslan will enter the room behind her very quietly. And as Lucy turns to look at Aslan, she can tell that she now glows with a beauty almost like the beauty in the picture book because she's in the presence of Aslan who has disrupted her envy. When evil envy, I'm sorry, when envy growls, friends, turn to Jesus and stick to your path. When you find yourself 20 feet away from somebody in whom you find so much good that you can't find any good in yourself, turn to Jesus and stick to your path. And very quickly, I want to suggest to you three things that the old prophet does that helps him at the end of this story, and I believe they'll help us when we face envy too. And they are mourn, honor, and trust. Mourn is the place to begin. After all, if envy is a sadness over who we are not, then let's mourn. That's okay to be sad about that. Go ahead and do so. In fact, bury the person that you are not as soon as possible in your life and get on with it. And then honor. When you see good in somebody else's life, honor them. Honor that good. Admire them. Encourage them. Think how different the story would be if each had encouraged the other on their path. We need that. You need that, and I do too. And then finally, trust. God has made wonderful promises to you and me in Jesus Christ. He always keeps his promises. His word is faithful to the end. It will surely come to pass, says the old man. You know what's so interesting about the story, 20 Feet from Stardom, that documentary? When you let these backup singers tell you their stories, very little envy is present in their lives. Remarkable. And you know why you learn that? Each of them tells you that for the most part, they grew up in church. That's where they learned to sing, in church. Darlene Love, at age 72 now, was invited to the Academy Awards and when they announced 20 Feet had won the, pr the prize for documentaries, she and the producers were invited up onto the stage. And 
producers gave their speeches, and then she stepped forward on her own to center stage, if only for a moment. She took the microphone into her hands. She began to sing. And she sang an old gospel hymn, His Eye is on the Sparrow. She sang, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. Because his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for coming walking among us on our paths. Thank you for the words of Jesus who calls us to consider the lilies of the field and see their beauty and know that they're more better dressed than Solomon in all of his splendor. You call us to look at the birds of the air and be reminded that they neither toil nor spin and yet their heavenly Father provides all that they need. Thank you that you call us single-mindedly to seek first Jesus, his kingdom, and his righteousness, and let all these things simply be added unto us. Help us in our unbelief, Jesus. And then give us the courage to walk the path that you lovingly set before us and to rely on the power that you provide in your Holy Spirit. We pray it in your name for your sake. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.